Uh, go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. Jalen, if you want to come on up. Uh, today we're moving into Genesis 3, and we get to meet a new character. Uh, so far in Genesis, we've met Yahweh, we've met Adam, we've met Eve. Uh, angels have been, I think, I think fairly intentionally, explicitly alluded to. Uh, and today we get to meet a new character. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right in. Jalen? It's good to go. Um, now the serpent was more shrewd than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Is it really true that God said, You must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said, You must not eat from it, and you must not touch it, or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die, for God knows uh, that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like divine beings who know good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree produced the fruit and that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard, at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman replied, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the wild beasts and all the living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head, and you will attack her offspring's heel. Thanks, John. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that today we would rightly consider your word, that we would step in, we would engage, that we would hear what you have to say. Lord, be with each of us as we go through this text. We love you so much. Amen. So this is a massive shift in the text. If you've never read Genesis before, you read chapter 1, God's creating everything. Read chapter 2, we see the eminence of Yahweh stepping into humanity and, and creating home and creating work and partnering with humanity. And, and chapter 2 ends on a high note. It's just this beautiful place, humanity acting, Adam and Eve acting as priests in the temple of Eden, doing the work of Yahweh, partnering with Yahweh. It's delightful. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 1. And it's suddenly very different. Now the serpent was more shrewd than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Is it really true that God said you must not eat from the tree, from any tree of the orchard? We're introduced to this character, the serpent, just out of the blue. Like, oh, there's a serpent here. I don't know about you, I kind of grew up with this idea of Eden being utopia. This perfect existence of humanity and God where nothing wrong or bad ever happens. 
But literally on page three of the Bible, there's, there's an antagonist. There's an evil representation of darkness and brokenness. Well, that's interesting. What, what business does the serpent have to do with the garden? And I guess the question that arises is, who is the serpent? Now, we're familiar enough with the Bible, we can make a guess that it's the devil, it's Satan. And this is, this is actually what the Bible upholds. It's definitely alluded to throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but the New Testament really makes it explicit. Would you throw up Revelation 12 on the screen? So that huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. That huge dragon, the ancient serpent, so as we're practicing our hermeneutical tool of reading and rereading and picking up themes and tracing the themes throughout the whole text, when we read the words ancient serpent, what are we meant to think of? Genesis 3, an ancient serpent. Interesting. What about, Gen uh, what about Revelation 20? Let's throw up the next one. Then I saw an angel descending from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and tied him up for a thousand years. Again, explicitly, the ancient serpent is the devil, is the enemy of God. Okay, so we're reading, things are great. Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent is present. So then the question arises, what is he trying to do? He tries to deceive Eve. He's the great deceiver. In Revelation 12, it says, who deceives the whole world. This is what he does. He's the deceiver. And this is exactly what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul writing, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I promised you in marriage to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his treachery, your minds may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Just as the serpent deceived Eve, so too may your minds be led astray. It's interesting. So we know who it is. We say, who is the serpent? It's the devil. What is he trying to do? He's trying to deceive Eve. And the question I have is why? Like, what's, what's going on here? Why, why does he care what's going on with Adam and Eve? He's there in the garden, and from our context, we go, yeah, there's a bad guy in every story. Ha-ha, <laughs> he's the bad guy. But what's his motivation? Why is he there? Why is he even interacting in the garden at all with humanity? And part of the reason this is a question in my mind is because from my reading of the text and understanding of theology and how Genesis intersects with the rest of the book of the Bible is that there is a pre-existing conflict going on that humanity is created in the midst of. I'm going to say that again. There's a pre-existing conflict going on in the heavenly realm that humanity is placed in the midst of. It's created in that. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Turn, turn a few pages back. 
This is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. And I touched on this briefly, I guess, a month and a half ago or two months ago. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. Now, I don't have time today to go into all that, but if you missed the message where we talked about this, just go back. You can listen to it on the podcast. This is not good language. Tohu vavohu, wild and waste, chaos, darkness. This is the opening page of the Bible. And then the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Interesting. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Out of chaos and brokenness and wild and waste, God brings light in. And what does he do next? He saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Does he call the darkness good? No. There's no calling the darkness good. He creates something in the midst of darkness and calls that good, and then separates what he created away from what is there. Do we see this process? Okay. And by the way, this, this concept is echoed throughout the rest of the scriptures. If you look at uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, it says this. This is Jesus talking. You people are from your father, the devil. And, and you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. You know what's really interesting about this passage to me? He was a murderer from the beginning. This is John. When John, particularly as an author, writes in the beginning, when is he talking about? Genesis 1. The devil is a murderer from the beginning. Now, if you say, Daniel, who did he murder? I have a, I have a very particular theological answer to that. It's, I have no idea. I don't know. But it says he's a murderer from the beginning. And so we're left with this tension of darkness and light, this conflict, and then humanity is created in the midst of this. Okay. So now, now what? If we have this framework, when we get to Genesis 3, if we have this framework of Genesis 1, Genesis 3 doesn't come as a shock to us. We've actually been waiting for a representation of the darkness and the chaos that's been there from the beginning. And we get to Genesis 3 and we go, yeah, it makes sense. There's a conflict going on. There's a bad guy in this story. We expect it and we prepare for it. And I would argue we see this conflict between Yahweh and spiritual forces of darkness throughout the rest of the scriptures over and over and over and over again. Eve with the serpent, Abram, he builds an altar to Yahweh in the land of other gods. Moses, we read it this week in our reading. He goes to Egypt and has, he has a competition with the magicians of Egypt. Who can perform the signs better? First one, they throw down staves. And the Yahweh staff that turns into a snake eats 
the pagan staff that turns into a snake. And then eventually the signs go on and on and on, and the magicians of Egypt can't keep up. Or, what's the, what's the first commandment? Someone shout it out. Oh, I know you know the Ten Commandments. What's the first? You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Solomon. What's this Achilles heel? He marries women from other lands and begins worshiping their gods. Elijah goes and confronts the prophets of Baal up on the mountain. It's another confrontation. Jesus, he's baptized and immediately driven into the desert where he's tempted by the enemy, by the devil. Confrontation, 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 confrontation. Paul goes on his missionary journeys and is confronted by demons. And then he writes this in Ephesians. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is Ephesians 6, 12. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. And then, of course, the scriptures crescendo into the revelation. And we see the conflict reach its conclusion. Interesting. Now, I know me saying this has been an ongoing conflict from the beginning uh, might be a, a new thought for some of us. And I want you to say that's totally fine. And if you disagree with me, I'm okay with that too. Uh, if you want to talk more about that, I'm happy to. I just don't have time to get into all the detail this morning. The point remains, though, we see this conflict in the heavenly realm throughout the text. And we see it kick off right here where we are today in Genesis 3, verse 1, with a serpent deceiving humanity. And let's, let's be really clear about this. There's a good side and a bad side to this conflict. These spiritual forces of darkness are evil. Deeply demonic evil. Did you know there's a command in the Bible to not, do, not perform child sacrifice? It's an explicit command to Israel from Yahweh. It says this. This is Leviticus 18, 21. You must not give any of your children as an offering to Molech, who is one of, one of the deities, so that you do not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Child sacrifice was rampant. It's actually one of the things that really makes the Abraham-Isaac story so significant and so interesting because it doesn't end the way it ends with all these other deities. And people would sacrifice their children because there was power in it. They didn't want to do it, but they would do it because it brought results. This is not a fun thing to talk about. Um, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 3, it's talking about the king of Moab. He's in a battle. 
He's losing the battle. So he comes up with a military strategy. Well, let's read. When the king of Moab realized he was losing the battle, and this was with Israel when they were not walking with the Lord. When the king of Moab realized he was losing the battle, he and 700 swordsmen tried to break through and attack the king of Edom, but they failed. He's losing the battle. He comes up with a military strategy. We're going to take these 700 men. We're going to break through at this point, and then we're going to surround and we're going to succeed. And then it goes on. But they failed. So he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice on the wall. There was an outburst of divine anger against Israel, so they broke off the attack and returned to their homeland. There is real power in the demonic. Man. So if we see this conflict between Yahweh and the demonic over and over and over again, what, what's, what's the resolution of this here in Genesis 3? So let's look back at our text. This is Genesis 3. I'm going to read in 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the wild beasts and all the living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring will attack your head, and you will attack her offspring's heel. Now, if you crush the head of a serpent, what happens? It dies. That's right. And if a viper bites your heel, poisons you, you die. This is a description of a mortal battle between the woman's offspring and the devil. And this is actually, we, we see this passage played out at the cross in the lake of fire. In the scriptures. This verse is actually called Proto-Evangelium because it's declared the first uh, proclamation of the gospel of Jesus defeating evil. Defeating evil. Now, as we're having this whole conversation, I want to um, just clarify something. This is Yahweh who's on an like it's not even fair to compare Yahweh to these other gods. Totally other, creator God against demonic forces, right? The power scale is, 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 is laughable. It's ridiculous. And this is, we see this reflected in Psalms. This would have been a great Psalm for last week too. Psalm 96, four through five. Tell the nations about his splendor. Tell all the nations about his amazing deeds. For the Lord is great and certainly worthy of praise. He is more awesome than all gods. What a great psalm. For all the gods of the nations are worthless, but the Lord made the sky. Okay? So, if we see here in Genesis 3.1, the serpent introduced, and then we see the serpent cursed, in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, with a prophecy attached to it. 
we go, this is a really significant piece of our Bible. This is a really significant piece of our faith. This is a huge part of our story as followers of Jesus. This ancient battle that we see in Genesis 3 is alive and well today. This isn't something that's happened way in the past that we don't have to worry about anymore. This is something that affects your life and affects my life daily. 1 Peter 5.8, this to the church. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is, this is present day. You have an enemy, the devil, and he is prowling around and he wants to devour. He wants to destroy. He wants to divide. The, the enemy just loves to divide and isolate us, to keep us from one another, to destroy relationship. Nobody, lo nobody loves you. You're not worthy of love. They wish you weren't here. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes when I'm talking about spiritual warfare, some, I'll have people say to me, I've never experienced spiritual warfare in my life. And I always ask them this question. Do you experience negative self-talk ever? You're so lazy, you're so stupid, you're so dumb. And the answer so far, I mean, feel free to prove me wrong afterwards, but the answer so far that I've always gotten is, oh yeah, for sure. I say, okay, can I ask you a question? Why is the pronoun in your voice you instead of I? Who is talking to you? I am so dumb, I am so lazy is a much different story than you are so dumb. You are so lazy. There's this incredible quote from 1836 from a Quaker named John Wilkinson. He says this, one of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. Another, perhaps equally fatal, is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them. Church, I pray this is not our attitude. That we imagine we have an ancient cosmic enemy who is standing idly by, not wanting to seek each of us out and destroy us. There's a battle that the enemy has won in America. It's that we believe if, if we believe that spiritual warfare is real, if we're a part of that small part of the population, then, and I slip into this more often than I care to admit, then we believe we're not on the front lines of it. Spiritual warfare is something that happens elsewhere, something that maybe even happens overseas, but not here, not in my neighborhood, not in my home, not in my town. Friends, let us not slip into that. The serpent is active today. This ancient serpent. 
we, we must take seriously the attempts of the serpent in our lives and worked diligently and efficiently to counteract them. John 10, 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is Jesus talking, right? We have the enemy's agenda, steal, kill, destroy. It's exactly what the serpent did in the garden. He came to steal peace. For answering our question, why is he, why is he interacting with Eve? Why is he coming into the garden at all? He came to steal peace. He came to kill relationship. He came to destroy family. So the question is, if we believe all this, which I do, we do, what do we do about it? What, What do you and I do about this battle. And I think there's a few things that we need to really realize. The first is we need to just take the step of realizing that we are in a battle. We genuinely are. We are in a cosmic battle that stretches back to the beginning of human history. That's huge. And what you do every day matters in this battle. Your role in this battle is huge as a participant. What was Eve's role in this battle? Here in Genesis 3, she was deceived. And she sided with the enemy with her choice. And the question I have is, when am I in my life siding with the enemy and his work in this world? This is what 1 John 3, 7 through 11 says. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. More Genesis language. For us today, the church, For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed, to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To save save me from my sins. Yes, that's a huge answer. Why did Jesus come? To preach about the kingdom of God. Yes, huge answer. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. We're kidding ourselves absolutely kidding ourselves if we think the devil is not alive and working in our lives today. We, we have totally bought in with the culture that the spiritual realm does not exist. We're deluding ourselves. We're pretending it's not real. Let me keep reading. By this, the children of God and the children of of the devil are revealed. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love his fellow Christian is not of God. For this is the gospel message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. How do we combat this? 
How do we participate in this cosmic battle? We do Jesus things. We love each other. That's really hard to do sometimes. We love each other. We step into the story that we were created for on the right side of what we were created to do, partnering with Yahweh in his work in the world. We step in, we participate wholeheartedly. We make his priorities our priorities. We stop trying to take the throne and deciding what's best. We turn to Yahweh and say, you decide what's best. We pray, we read our Bibles, we be watchful, we be sober-minded, we pay attention. Friends, we, please do not fall into the temptation of treating your own sin lightly. We must stop playing patty cake with sin. We just have to. We just have to. We're, 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 we're joining a side when we do that. We're saying, this doesn't matter, really. I know best. I know better. I know maybe the church says, or the Bible says, or Jesus says, or the Spirit says, but I know best. And then we're right back with Adam and Eve here in Genesis 3, making the decision that I know better. And we're joining in the work of the serpent in this world. I, uh, last week, um, had uh, some friends over with their kids, and the dads and I were sitting around our kitchen table talking. And on one, what's that, across the table from me is an Buddhist slash atheist guy, and then the other dad is just full 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 blown atheist, and we're talking and chatting and talking about life and religion and reality, and my heart was was just breaking because I'm I'm hearing the stories and I'm hearing the values, and what I'm seeing is Genesis one chaos and darkness. And it's breaking my heart, and I want so badly for the light of Yahweh in that darkness. So what do I do? You, you text, you reach out, you say, hey, let's do this again. Let's not lose this relationship. Let's step in further. Come over next week. Let's call on Friday next week after that. You step in. We have to, we have to. There's a battle going on and we are on the front lines I think we often think far too little of ourselves. That's a strange thing to hear, but we do. We think what I do doesn't really matter. It only really affects me, or it only maybe even affects my family. This sin, or my lack of participation, or my laziness, or whatever it is, it's just affecting me, maybe my friends. As opposed to understanding the gravity of the battle that we are in, each of us, every day. I have two goals for this message. One is um, for us to understand the presence and reality and power of the spiritual battle that we are in, in the heavenly realm. And the second is for each of us to understand how important our role is in this battle. 
And so that as, as opportunities come up, as things come across our path, we don't shy away. We don't say someone else will pick that up. We press in. Uh, uh, Katie Burton told me a great story a couple weeks ago. She uh, was going to just go have her Sabbath in McMinnville. We've got a great little downtown. So she goes and she walks into a gift shop and there's a gal there. It's like, what'd you say, like 19 or something like that? Um, just working behind the counter and it starts, you know how sometimes people will do this, like casually drop really heavy things in conversation, like it's no big deal. Uh, starts doing that and Katie uh, steps in and she engages and she listens and listens and they have this long talk and on her way out the door she goes, well, I'm never in McMinnville, but all right, you know, I hope I see you again. I'll see you again and leaves. And then that week is thinking like, oh man, that was way too significant of a conversation to just leave that alone. This is Katie paying attention, listening, watching, seeing a moment. And so she's going out to the coast like the next week and is like, I'm gonna stop in McMinnville. And she stops in McMinnville and the gal is working there and her face lights up when she sees Katie and says, I knew you would be back. She says, and when I woke up today, I thought I might see you today. They keep talking and engaging, they exchange phone numbers, they spend all this time together. Uh, the gal is gonna move back to Boise to live with grandparents or family or something like that. And they, they, Katie and this girl hang out for a whole week before she leaves. And Katie, listening again, says, hey, is there room on the front seat of your car on the way to Boise? Or is it Boise, Idaho, something like that? And she goes, yeah. Katie says, can I come with you? Yeah, so Katie drives all the way to Idaho with her, stays a few days with her family, and then flies home, all in her own dollar, like, just pursuing Jesus. She ends the story by saying, Daniel, I just have pictures, this image in my mind, of her walking through those doors into our church. How do we fight in this battle? We... Gary Bashirs is an incredible theologian and professor of mine, and uh, he has this great thing. He teaches a class on spiritual warfare, and he says, how do we fight the devil? We do Jesus-y stuff. <laughs> we press in. We know all the stuff that pastors say on Sundays. We know all of that. We've got that. Love each other. Like, do good. Don't do bad. Like, we get that but let's place it in the context of the story that we were created in. Story is so powerful. It gives us meaning and purpose. We understand the context of actions. We understand motivations and we press in. This is our story as followers of Jesus. This is the story of humanity and we step in, and what you do every day matters in this cosmic battle and will echo throughout eternity. Let's not treat our own lives as unsacred things. Let us press into the reality of this gift of existence that we've been given, this gift of life, and receive the gift of Jesus. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. And let's partner with Jesus in destroying the works of the devil. I wish I had like a take-home assignment or something. I don't. May we just follow the king and do what we already know is right. May we be watchful. 
May we be sober-minded. Let us not be deceived by the serpent. And let's roll up our sleeves because there's work to do.